Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and it is summertime. And I hope that you are safe. With the virus still not under control in many countries, many parts of the world, I'm always a bit uh, worried about, about you. But uh, let's hope that we will get through this together. Here in the Netherlands, the situation is more or less stable, but as we know from other countries, that can change at any moment, especially now that a lot of people are traveling again and are outside, maybe not always realizing that they have to keep their distance. Um, we'll see. I mean, it's no use trying to predict what's going to happen because the, this is so unpredictable. We know so little. The only thing that we can hope is that the, there will be a vaccine somewhere at the end of the year, maybe at the beginning of next year, and that they can roll it out quickly enough so that life can return to normal or at least approach norm normality. I don't know what the future is going to look like. Maybe we'll have to keep our distances for for a while. We will probably get the hang of it. We'll probably adapt because humanity has always been able to adapt uh, throughout history to whatever uh, comes over us. But in the meantime, try to be as careful as possible. Don't take any unnecessary risks because uh, I can't miss you all. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I'm still working hard here in, at the rectory to uh, um, refurbish a lot of the of the rooms. Um, still working on the kitchen. That is a much bigger project than I initially thought it would be. I was like, okay, I'll just go to IKEA, uh, let them make a design for this one room. It's actually the smallest room upstairs, and. Um, how hard can it be? You know, they design kitchens for a living there, at least in, in that section of IKEA. So, yeah, it, it'll be costly. It usually is. But at the same time, it's going to be something that I use on a daily basis, multiple times a day. It's, I always think, think of these things as uh, not only how mu much does it cost, but what is the return on investment? And there are just two, two areas here in this house that um, are really in, in dire need of a, an upgrade. And that's, well, the kitchen upstairs. So I'm going to have an, a new kitchen upstairs that I can finally design uh, according to my use instead of just this kitchen that was already in place and I had no, no say in when they, when, they, when they installed it. And it's clearly not made by people that cook themselves because it's, it's <laughs> really not a very handy uh, kitchen to work in. Um, and then, and then a bathroom. I mean, that that's the room you visit the most, at least. Well, I am, <laughs> and it, it is so in need of an upgrade. I think this one was created. The one that I have upstairs is uh, from the seventies, maybe even earlier. Um, and so, but at the same time, both the kitchen and bathrooms; those are that all has to do also with. Um, the the sewer the connection to the sewers water etc etc so it's not something you can just change by by putting some new furniture in place like I've done in the other rooms but as long as we're working on that I'm also working on perfecting my skills in accessorizing <laughs> I have all these bookcases and well I didn't want to put all my books back in those bookcases. Uh, I think I've explained this before. It's because most of those books I bought when I was a student and I didn't have much money, so they're all like paperback 
editions, very cheap. Um, and a lot of them, since, since I bought them when I was a student, they're now falling apart. They were never meant to be used, well, to last for, for 20 years. And so I fortunately also have a, a number of nice books that are very well crafted and, and very presentable. So I'm taking those books and I'm trying to, to use the bookcases to, to configure the bookcases in such a way that they look nice, that they kind of show some, something of my personality. And this is an entire art. If you ever go to, to a store like Ikea, I mean, there are lots of other, other furniture stores that do the same. They have this showroom and... In Ikea, it's almost the entire upper floor is just showroom. It shows you little rooms where you can see the furniture that they sell in a setting that, uh, well, that, that's what they hope, that it makes you dream, like, oh, my house could look like that. Now, in reality, that's almost never the case because there are a number of things that Ikea does very well, and you don't notice it. First of all, the lights. You, you think that the, the, all those, those demo rooms are being lit by the lamps that you can buy at Ikea. But that's not the case. If you look up, and, and that's always this kind of my technical interest, when you look up, you see actually how they do it. And then you notice that they have these very bright spots that are very expensive. They all have lenses in front of the lights. And those spotlights are highlighting elements in the in the demo room so for instance you would see bookshelves but then there would be this patch of light or on a painting or even on a chair or something they want to highlight so they play around with and those lights those special lights are so much stronger than the demo lights that you can buy um that they can easily completely fake it so for instance there, there are these lamps that you can hang above your table right when you have a a dining table or something like that. You want to have good light on a table because you want to see what you eat. Plus, it creates an atmosphere. So sometimes they will have these lamps and they're kind of an open structure. So for instance, they're made out of uh, copper wires. Well, probably not copper wire. That would be electrically a little bit dangerous. But anyway, some, some kind of a... Or maybe um, uh, made out of straw or, or, or not straw, um, bamboo or whatever. But they won't have... It's not, it's not a closed. Like sometimes they will have these metal half domes and the lamp is, un, is in the middle of it, so it shines down because of the rest is not transparent. But a lot of their fancy lamps have an open structure. So basically what happens if you, if you put a light bulb in there, the light goes everywhere. It doesn't create a bundle on the table. However, they do want to sell it to people that are refurbishing their living room. So if you look closely, you notice that there are a number of these very expensive specialized spots that are shining down exactly at the place underneath these demo lamps. So you get the idea, well, wow, that looks fantastic. And then you hang those lamps in your own living room, and then it's such a disappointment because you don't have that same light bundle. So uh, it, it is worth going to Ikea just to see how they play with light and how much how important light is for the overall mood in your rooms and of course you can recreate some of that but you will have to install extra lights you can't do it just with the lights that they show in the catalog um, the second thing that is something that you you take for granted when you visit Ikea or again any other furniture store is 
it all looks so cozy. And there is a certain informality to all these demo rooms. So it feels very homely. I mean, you, you would be able to live there. But what you don't realize is that everything is meticulously planned. The bookcases that they have, the shelves, the decoration, the plants, even the, the, the things on the floor, the way they, they, they match the colors, all that is done by professional designers. And that is actually much harder to replicate than you think. And I, I'm talking from experience. I Initially, when I decorated uh, Rectory, I just took stuff that I liked, you know, I like geeky things. So I was uh, working on the bookshelves here in the studio downstairs and I had a number of Star Wars puppets, like these plastic puppets that I bought. And I was like, oh, I'm going to put those on display. I finally have some bookcases to do that. So I put them in the bookcases and then I was like, oh, I've got a lot of Lego stuff. Let's put the Lego in there as well. And then I had a miniature Hobbit home or Hobbit hole uh, like a half dome, very cute, actually something to put in a garden. But I was like, oh, that would look great. And I step back and I look at that bookcase and it's a mess. It's just like your eyes are going everywhere and it doesn't have any harmony. So I'm thinking, well, what am I doing wrong? And the same upstairs, I have some bookcases for the room for the board games or the dining room. And I try to kind of fill these shelves with stuff and it just doesn't work it it instead of looking cozy it looks messy and it's a hodgepodge of of things and there are some books in there but then i took whatever you know just a, a couple of a row of books and then i i placed something next to that and and it just didn't work so what do you do when you know that something is possible but you can't replicate it it probably means that you have to acquire that skill. You have to train yourself. You have to, to learn how to do that. And so I started to Google on YouTube, or I, I, I YouTubed on Google, or <laughs> I'd start looking for videos about how to decorate bookcases. I'd literally type in that question, how to decorate bookcases. And I found a ton of videos, some older, some from Europe, some from America, actually a lot from the United States, where apparently this is a big thing. And I was just mesmerized to learn how, how much of an art this is and how, how many things you have to keep in mind when you're decorating the bookshelves. To give you an example, you do need books, but not just any books. You go and first you sort from your collection of books. You take those that really look nice, preferably not too brightly colored, not too eccentric, but... Definitely the books that are bound, maybe a leather, muted colors. And then you, you, you sort them also uh, in, in different piles of uh, same similar colors, colors that match, that go together well. And then you make these combinations. And one of the ways in which you can create harmony is by repeating patterns. So there's this one video that says, well, just make... Sp small piles of books and they can be different books as long as there's always a red book a white book and a blue book and then you make in in one part of the of, uh, of the bookcase you put them upright and so you have red white and blue and then uh, a little bit on the right side not exactly don't don't make it symmetrical 
But on the other side, you you lay down a number of books, uh, and you do like white, blue, red, and it can be a different a different intensity of the color. As long as these colors are repeated, your mind will notice that and will think, "Hey, wow, that is a re- recurring pattern." And then you the next pile can be a little bit higher and can be thicker books or whatever. And then these these books that you you lay down. Um, make sure that they have nice lettering on it. And then you can use those as a stand for something else. So I tried to apply that here downstairs, and I created a little one shelf that was dedicated to Star Trek. So I've got on the on the left side, I've got two uh, Blu-ray boxes of the first and the second season of the original Star Trek uh, series. Um, they have ve- very nice paper covers with a reflecting logo, and th- it's blue and yellow, and it looks great. And I was looking uh, through my collection, looking for other Star Trek books, and I found a couple, but they're all used up, and I mean, I've read these books for years, so they didn't look pretty. But then I found one uh, book with the memoirs of, of Shatner, and another book that was sent to me by one of my listeners, and that is actually autographed by Bill Shatner, and uh, so it's dedicated to Father Roderick, which is oh, so cool. Um, and the that last book even had the same kind of blue color as was in the cover of the of the Blu-ray. So I put the Blu-rays a little bit apart from each other, slightly in an angle, and then I put the other two books um, horizontally. And it already looked very nice, very pretty. Not, not too much. That's another rule of decorating uh, anything. Um, also, leave a lot of open spaces. Don't cram in just whatever you like, but but make sure that your eyes eye also has uh, room. It's it's like when you're designing. So in in many respects, it, this reminds me of what I learned when I was doing a graphics design uh, or magazine design. I've done that for multiple years. Um, it was all in the margin. It was not just text. You needed to have all these this open space where it's just paper, white paper, um, so that whatever you put in these margin within these margins pops out. Almost a metaphor of life, right? In order to excel, you have to have margin in your life as well. If you work twenty four hours a day. It's going to suffer. It's going to be too much. But you need leisure time, time to, for prayer, meditation, silence also. And that will form the margin so that the things that you do within those margins can really, you know, be the best. And so these, this, this Star Trek scene that I created on, on just a very small, uh, uh, one, it's one bookshelf of 80 centimeters wide. It still lacks one thing. It lacks a prop. And so watching that one video where you could use the, the, the horizontal books as a, almost as a display for a prop made me think, oh, I need a model of the Enterprise. How cool would it be to have a small model of the Enterprise, preferably the original Enterprise, just slightly, you know, at an angle, maybe on a transparent uh, stand, and place that on top of those books. I can totally visualize it. And then I'll have my little... Star Trek shelf. And then underneath it, I created another shelf um, 
which is dedicated to Harry Potter. And at first I put there uh, some Harry Potter books there. And then I'd made the Lego train, the Hogwarts train also, which is beautiful, very brightly colored in red. And the red of the train forms a beautiful contrast with the yellow and blue of the Star Trek shelf above it. So those colors also match very well. But then I stepped back and again, I was like, the train itself is such a beautiful set. And I think I even have a, a video on YouTube where I, where I build it on, uh, live. It doesn't need anything else. You just want that train and that is enough. So I removed books also because there were already books on the shelf above it. And so in that way, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And uh, another trick is uh, variation between small stuff and big objects. So I took out a number of these shelves to create larger open spaces in the bookcases. And I, I tried to find a certain, uh, a little bit of a symmetry, but also to make it a bit unpredictable. And so in these larger spaces, um, I need larger objects. Of course, I can cram it with a lot of small stuff, but that will, again, create disharmony. So now what I am planning to do is to look around, and I'm just going to take my time um, on, on fantasy fairs or science fiction conf conferences or whatever, and look for big props. I don't know what exactly, I mean, something like Thor's hammer. <laughs> you need something big that, that is eye-catching, and especially in the center, the things that need to be centerpieces, they need to wow you. It's like, oh, that looks awesome. Um, and when it's big, you don't need to put anything else in those spaces. And then finally, I, I had some leftover space, and I created four horizontal um, uh, rectangles, open rectangles. So instead of giving dividing it with a, a small uh, plank in to create two squares, it's just one rectangle. rectangle. And that's where I placed the Star Wars puppets. And I create not I, not just Star Wars puppets on display. I also tried to make it um, tell a story. So I had two puppets of two biker scouts, which to me is still one of the coolest costumes uh, of the of the Empire. So I had these two biker scouts, and they were on sale. So I bought them for maybe I don't know eight bucks a piece. And they're pretty large, and. And, and then just recently, uh, we went to, um, to Amsterdam. Uh, so I went there with Inge, and we came across this, uh, this geek store, and they had a plastic baby Yoda, and it, it was fantastic. Uh, so I, I, I bought the uh, baby Yoda, but then I didn't know where to put it until I discovered that it's actually the exact same scale as these biker scouts. So I put these two biker scouts in a pose so that it looks as if they're debating. And then Baby Yoda is right there in front of them. So it, it mimics the scene from The Mandalorian where these biker scouts have captured uh, uh, Baby Yoda. And, and, so, and I did another one. I had a, a puppet of um, uh, Phasma, Captain Phasma, because it's a very cool costume. It's, it's one of the biggest puppets I have. But I also had a puppet of Finn. Um, so I put these two together, and, and now it looks as if they're like 
confronting each other. And so I'm, I'm really, really excited about how that looks. And also it creates a vertical symmetry. Um, and, and these are really, you know, eye-popping d- display puppets. So um, I, I need to make sure that what surrounds it is a little bit more modest and, and not as... Uh, because if, if that also attracts your attention then you, again, you, you don't know where to look and it's, it, it doesn't work anymore. It's a lot of trial and error, but I'm getting the hang of it. And the more I, I, I mess with it, and it's very um, in, intuitive. So uh, I, I, I had these leftover spaces on the lower part of the bookcases and I noticed that it was exactly the size of, of my Blu-rays. I thought I was just going to put all my Blu-rays there. So I had this long row of Blu-rays and I stepped back and I was like, oh, that doesn't look good at all. It actually, it's way too messy and all these different covers. Um, so then what I did, and this was very, uh, um, maybe a little bit over the top, but I, I, I reordered all the, DV, all the DVDs and Blu-rays following the color the color spectrum. So it starts with dark blue and it goes to light blue and then to slightly green and to dark green and then to yellow and from yellow to orange, orange to red, red to purple, pink, and then black. And then even the, the black ones, the majority of my Blu-rays have black covers. I'm talking about the side, right, of the, of the Blu-ray. Um, even there, the, the, the titles of the movies have different colors. So I also put all the red on black together and then all the white on black and the silver on black. And So now I have this same row. It's exactly the same amount of movies, but since they're all color sorted, all of a sudden you've got harmony and it looks nice. Wow. <laughs> so much fun to do this. And I'm, I'm still a beginner. I know some people that are extremely good at this. So maybe one of these days I'll do a live stream and ask for some online advice from people that I know are good at this. And uh, maybe we can make this a communal project. But for the time being, it's another skill that uh, I never thought I'd I'd, uh, be able to master. Um, And so YouTube is a great uh, place to find tutorials, but also simply go to Ikea and instead of just... um, getting like general impressions, try to figure out why does this room work? What did they do with the colors? What did they do with the lights? Are there any patterns? Do do they have matching structures or colors or or shapes? And you'll discover a ton of tricks that they use uh, to to make it look so that you want to replicate it and buy tons of furniture. So that would be my, uh, my tip of this week. And now it is time to move over to the world of movies and TV shows. And um, I have a very cool movie that I discovered by accident almost on uh, on Netflix. And it's normally not a type of movie that I would check out, but uh, I watched it after seeing some recommendations. And wow, I like it. And it's very different from anything else I've, dis- I've um, reviewed here on the show. So... We're going to talk about that right after the jingle. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. 
You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. The movie is called Double World, and it's actually a Chinese movie. It is a, was produced in Hong Kong, originally for, um, for a Chinese uh, theatrical release, and then subsequently or probably also a, a limited European release, uh, maybe even in, in America, uh, like we've seen uh, Crouching Tiger and that sort of stuff. So it, it, usually those don't become big box office hits, but, uh, well, maybe they can just uh, make their money back. And definitely the Chinese market, of course, for these action movies or action fantasy movies is, is tremendously big. So this movie was produced in Hong Kong by a Hong Kong director, producer, and it's based, the story is based on uh, a video game. It's based on a very popular Chinese RPG game called Zheng Tu. It's one of the most played games of the past decade. And I was like, uh, okay, let me Google that. So I'm Googling it. Almost no results. And so I had to really do a deep dive. And it turns out that this game is only known in China. And, but of course, China is a market of tens of millions of people that play that game. So it was a super, and it was because the game actually is no longer active, I think. Maybe there's another a new version, but the original Zheng Tu game is no longer um, available. So it was a fairly simple-looking Chinese RPG, and when I read about it, um, I kind of understood that it, I got why this was never translated and brought to Europe and other parts of the world. It is apparently one of the greediest RPGs ever made. It was really, it was worse than pay-to-play. It was basically um, pay-to-progress, pro but pay-to-keep-on-playing. Uh, instead of just having some extra perks, you, you absolutely had to pay, and not just a monthly payment, but all these micro-payments to get anywhere in the game. The game also was highly competitive. Competitive. So if you didn't upgrade your gear and and paid for it, then you you would get it, you would get robbed by people that would spend money on on extra gear. So the more money you have, the stronger you are in the game, which is absolutely a no go right now for most gamers, um, especially since the debacle of um, of Battlefront with the loot boxes. Um, and the scandal that, that, that was almost worldwide. like Gamers hated it that you could pay for loot boxes, which would give you an unfair advantage over other players in these player-to-player uh, -player situations. And so this game, Zheng Tu, actually made, made just an art of, of trying to sell you everything and anything. And there have been... I've been reading some stories about people that actually lost their their entire existence because of this game. They were so addicted. And the game was, was specifically targeted to very rich people that lived in Hong Kong and that just didn't know what to do with their money. And so, uh, and, and maybe had very unsatisfying lives and be, being this hero, paying for being this hero, this invincible warrior in, in Zheng Tu could give them some kind of social status or virtual status. I don't know. There are lots of... Uh, psychological rules underneath that whole you know industry almost so the game itself didn't have a very good reputation because it ruined people it ruined people's lives and it was so addictive uh, that it uh, 
yeah, had some very nasty consequences. However, since this game was played by tens of millions of people, it is a very well-known franchise in the Chinese market. And it was based on a kind of a, a fictional recreation of China. And I'm just going to read you the premise of this movie, if I can find it somewhere in my copious show notes. Uh, and of course, I've got a ton of <laughs> notes to work my way through. Uh, where did I put that? Um, so anyway, the the fictional China that is presented in the movie has uh, two parts, the northern region and the southern region. And they are, uh, of course, like uh, in many real history of China, they are at war. And um, there's lots of betrayal happening. And uh, I think the... Southern King, who is still very, very young, um, is almost killed by um, some infiltrators from the uh, Northern Kingdom. And that is when uh, a, another grant, what was it, tutor of, of the Southern um, uh, Kingdom, who's actually not to be trusted at all, is scheming and is influencing everyone and is proposing that they should organize, well, I couldn't call it anything else, but another, a Chinese version of the Hunger Games. So every district of the Southern Kingdom has to send three representatives that are then um, forced to fight each other uh, to the death in an arena in the capital of the, of the kingdom. And so we get to meet... Um, the heroes of the story. Oh, I finally found the the tab with the <laughs> with the summary uh, because the, the 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 movie. I'm now talking about the story of the movie that is based on the game. Um, has has this this plot line. So it's it happens in a fantastical reimagined version of ancient China, divided into the warring regions of northern Yan and southern Zhao. Following an assassination attempt on the young southern king Wang Zhiji probably the actor, the scheming grand tutor Guang, played by Hu Ming, proposes a contest to elect a new grand field marshal who will help restore order to the region. Each of the eight clans, or clans, I was talking about districts, but that's definitely Hunger Games, but same here, clans, will send three contenders to compete in a series of deadly gladiator, gladiatorial contests in Phoenix City. Um... The, the main hero of the story is played by a very popular actor slash singer slash musician slash teenage hero uh, called Henry Lau. That's, of course, kind of his stage name. Um, he plays the character of Dong Yilong, and he's an orphan street rat from remote Qingzhong. Um, and when I saw how it was portrayed, I was thinking, this is just a Chinese Aladdin. It's exactly the same character. He finds himself in a, in nominated to represent his clan alongside Chu Hun, uh, played by Peter Ho Yung Tung, who is a world-weary soldier who wields a broken spear. Um, and it's uh, again, it's a, a, a absolutely an archetype that we've seen in many stories, many video games, many fantasy movies. After losing their original third teammate en route, 
who is just has no name and is killed by a huge uh, scorpion-like monster. By the way, awesome fight. The special effects in this movie are so good. They're very video gamey, but wow, it's well done. Um, they recruit a plucky young thief called Jingang, played by Lin Chenghan, as their third member, and she is joining them while they face off against the kingdom's most formidable warriors that really get no character development at all, including Him Lo Chung Him's royal bodyguard. In this already crowded arena, screenwriters Liu Fendu and Wang Ning squeeze in Zhang Luxia's feral, uh, fear, feral assassin, and so I suppose that's the assassin of the, of the king, right? I've already lost track. That's one of the issues of this movie. There's so many characters, and they almost get no screen time. And then also Shishi, as an almost spectral reminder to Yilong that while he is there, he must seek out his father's true identity. So yeah, at one point there is this quest giver that tells this uh, young Yilong, uh, like... Uh, not only do we send you to the capital, but you have to find your father because it's he doesn't know who his father is, and and that is so obviously a setup for what comes later. But it feels very contrived and almost like uh, you know any quest giver in a video game is like, "Hello, how are you today? Uh, darkness is coming. Uh, please uh, get me three reds and uh, five uh, uh, pieces of uh, of tree bark, um, and I will make you a recipe for a potion that will help you." Now that darkness is coming. <laughs> you know, it's... Okay, there's no... Not a... There's no way in which the story prepares you for this. But, oh, uh, eventually they'll, they'll pay it off. So, anyway, you hear from the, my tone of voice that there is a lot, you know, to comment on. And this is not absolutely not a Oscar-worthy movie. However, it is so entertaining. And it's so much fun. And what I loved is it is entirely in Chinese. And so it's not dubbed. You, you just have to read subtitles, which for some of you may be a little bit of a chore. But it so helps the movie that it's all done in Chinese. The, the music is very Western, I have to say. It, uh, this could be music for a Lord of the Rings movie. And the same is true for the special effects. The way this, the looks of this movie, this could have been a Peter Jackson movie. It's that good. And I'm talking about Peter Jackson from, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and uh, Mortal Engines. I mean, it's just, it looks fantastic. The fights are very well choreographed. They use a little bit of that wire work stunt stuff that we've seen in Crouching Tiger. Um, but it's not over the top. It doesn't become b ballet. Um, but the overall story is just super entertaining, and I really want to see the sequel to this. So maybe it's also because I play a lot of video games. But uh, I, I think this is, um, yeah. I, I'm just going to play a little bit of the, of the trailer just to give you, I'm not sure if this is going to be in Chinese, but I'm going to play it anyway. Let's see. So it's available on Netflix over here in, uh, in my country. In the Chinese so the youngest actor or youngest character is called an orphan and it's a bit of philosophical banter. Competition is about to start. And the three of them, their fates are linked together. 
monsters that they need to fight. It absolutely looks spectacular. <laughs> I will not let you die here. And then there is a dragon. And he looks like Godzilla and Schmauk had a love baby. <laughs> that is definitely the dragon is. You take Godzilla and Schmaug and you blend them together and that's the dragon of Double Ward. Not that I'm complaining because the dragon looks fantastic. So don't don't watch this movie expecting a, a very good story, but it, it still it follows all the tropes. I think that's an advantage because it, it, these tropes have proven to work and uh, the, the pace of the story is so good that you just can't stop watching it. I... I was very happy that I discovered this movie. Time for the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And today on my list, I want to talk a little bit about uh, patron saints and some strange analogies with Roman worship of deities. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. Now, as you know, Christianity and the way that it's evolved, its forms, its, its uh, appearances, uh, also its culture does not stand alone. That's the true for any culture, for any religion. It's always influenced by the surrounding culture. And that is an ongoing process. The way that we celebrate Mass, the rituals, the songs that we sing, the forms that we use, the way we decorate and build our churches, that is not just something that is only limited to Catholicism. All, all this is a, is a collection of influences that were integrated into the Catholic tradition. And the same is true for any other cultural tradition. That's why you should never uh, turn the current Catholic culture or even forms of worship into an absolute, because it's not. It will continue to evolve. It has always evolved over the centuries. And so it's not uh, an accident that many of the... Uh, the, the elements of the Catholic faith show um, influences of, of, of existing cultures at, from the time that Christianity was established. Um, and in our case of the Roman Catholic Church, the name itself kind of implies it, there are also a lot of Roman influences. Have you ever wondered why priests wear these robes and why these robes look the way they do? Well, actually, that was just the way that, for instance, senators would walk around in ancient Rome. This was very regular clothing. And then at one time, people started to wear other types of clothes, and, and, and the dignitaries, both political or uh, leg legislative or religious, they would continue to stick with the old robes to distinguish themselves. And so, of course, they were 
they were they, they evolved in the Catholic Church, and we got the liturgical colors, and they added crosses and everything. But the basic outfit of a priest during Mass goes back to clothing in the you know times of the Roman Empire, and so back then this, that was considered to be just very regular clothing. The same is true for monks and everything. A lot of that was just very functional clothing. It wasn't meant to be like, okay, this, we're this brand of monk, so that, that's why we have these, this combination of colors. Usually there was a very pragmatic reason for the, sh the, the form and the configuration of those clothes. Now, these influences go much deeper than that. Uh, many of the traditions that we uh, cherish and celebrate in the Catholic Church stem from older uh, uh, feasts, sometimes cultural uh, um, uh, parties or processions that were in place. And then when Christianity was on the rise, they took the existing uh, rituals and gave them a new meaning or an, 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 a new patronage. So, for instance, a, a famous story is about um, the veneration of the Virgin Mary in Rome, uh, which... Uh, was at one point, and still up until today, you see a lot of these processions in, in, in Italy. They carry around a statue of the Virgin Mary. Well, a lot of those uh, um, processions actually borrow from existing traditions of, of, of Roman uh, uh, um, festivities, where they would carry around statues and, and paintings and whatnot of the various deities, and, of course, for the early Christians, that was especially after uh, Constantine uh, made it much, much safer for, to be a Christian. They just took what worked, what worked culturally, what brought together a lot of people, but then used it not to honor uh, the, the deities of, of Roman religion, but to honor the mother of God. But the forms were very similar. And it's almost actually a, a pretty good tactic, a communications tactic. Um, you use the language that people are familiar with. You use the, the things that trigger people, and then you use that to, to translate your own message. That's basically what I'm doing as well. I mean, I'm talking about movies, I'm talking about all sorts of geek stuff, but I use that language also to express my faith and to, or to clarify certain things, certain aspects of the gospel, for instance. So you see that, that intertwinement of, of all these cultures uh, in, in many different shapes and forms in the Catholic tradition, even in the way that we have kind of created this whole order of saints. Um, you probably heard of the term patron saint, where a saint has a certain patronage. Um, think of St. Anthony. If you've lost something, you know, lost objects, go to St. Anthony and he will help you. Um, gosh, what else is there? Uh, the patron saint of animals, um, patron saint of even dogs and cats, I think, of their own. Like um, St. Hubert um, is, is uh, patron saint of the, of the hunters because there's this story or this maybe a legend of his life that he encountered a, um, a deer and there was a cross uh, entangled in his uh, antlers and something like that. So that's how he became the patron saint for the hunters. Uh, that is actually something that is very close to what the Romans already did, where they had deities, and you see this also in Greek uh, mythology, in, in Greek religion, 
um, or ancient Greek or classic Greek religion, where they had gods for every everything under the sun. You know, you had a god of war, and the Egyptians had the same: a god for for fertility, a god for the lovers, a god for the apple trees, <laughs> god for the horses. And Christianity kind of just took that idea, I think, and applied it to what was important to them, and that is all these saints, you know, they can help you. And it, it makes it easier also to kind of distinguish between the saints if they have all these different areas of interest in a certain way. <laughs> Just as in a, in a company, you would have different departments, one for design, one for marketing. Well, so we kind of imagine the heaven to be the same. We've got all these saints, but you have some specialists. Usually, the pat patronage is linked to an, an event or a myth uh, uh, from the life of this uh, of this earth, uh, particular saint, and so it doesn't mean that if someone is the the patron saint of uh, horses, that 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 person was uh, constantly r riding a horse and uh, only preached to horses or something like that. No, it's, it's usually just one story, and we don't even know. Well, depends on, of course, the the uh, time w during which the saint lived. We don't have uh, historical records for for all the saints. Um, sometimes it's just this one legend, and sometimes it's even a misunderstanding, like it's something they attributed to a saint, but actually never happened, and in his or her life, but then that person is still stuck with that patronage. But I think it is, again, sticking something that worked in the existing surrounding religions, and then apply, just giving it a new twist in Christianity. Does that make the patron saints invalid because they were inspired by you know the, the the way in which the romans attributed certain things to certain deities no of course not it's just a good idea and <laughs> why not take that and and use it for what you think is important patron sa uh, saints are very important also the aspect that saints can help you and can pray for you because just like we do for each other here and we would also go i mean if i need something uh, to be fixed in my in my rectory i go to experts right if i have a question about uh, i don't know electricity i have a parishioner who is that's been his job so i go and ask him for help um if my computer is broken and shows me the blue screen of death, who do you go to? Who, do you, who are you going to call? Well, Inga Lotz, of course, because she can fix it in an hour and then your computer works again. So in, in this life, the patron, the patron saint of my Windows computer is, in this case, it's Inga. Um, and she'll probably stay alive for a long time. And as she's signaling for me from the other room, it's like, don't mention my name without my permission. <laughs> She's doing it administration on the other computer. But um, you see what I mean. So in, in real life, we, we totally understand that concept. Well, with, with the saints in the Catholic tradition, it's kind of similar. They can help you. And, well, if they have like a specific thing that uh, kind of struck the imagination of people from the, their life history, then that's how they ended up being patron saints for specific needs. I, I came across this topic while I was preparing for, for one of my TV episodes um, where uh, I would like to, I'm still uh, kind of producing it, I would like to film it in a an historical museum. and It's an outdoor museum, Archeon. I went there usually for the, their winter fairs where it's more fancy-based, but uh, they have recreated um, uh, a, a, a Roman settlement. They did 
prehistoric, uh, there's a prehistoric park, part of the park, a Roman part and a medieval part. And they based it on excavations in my country. So, as you know, the Romans also had uh, lots of settlements here in, in uh, these nord- northern regions, many of which we've been able to retrace through archaeology. But unfortunately, usually you do archaeologic findings when you're preparing, you know, foundations for a new building or a bridge or a road. So you can't create a museum there. What, the, what Archeon did was to take those findings and then recreate those places for real, re- rebuild these Roman bathhouses and everything. So I would like to film there an episode of my TV show. And then I was looking for, uh, you know, are there locations there that can lead to a conversation about, you know, Catholic traditions and culture and whatnot. And then there's this one garden where they have a statue of the female, uh, fe- I think it's, she's a female saint, a female uh, deity of Roman religion called uh, Ape Epona, the goddess, the goddess Epona. And she's the, the goddess for the horses. And, ch- and she was uh, um, prayed to, well, uh, she was actually quite popular in Europe. She was prayed to, um, to ask for her protection uh, for the horses, that they wouldn't be mistreated, that they for the health of the horses. And of course, horses were very important to the Roman economy. So it made sense to have a deity that uh, you could uh, ask for help. Well, I, I googled a little bit, and we have an equivalent saint, patron saint, in, in Catholicism, and it's, it's Saint Eloy, or in Latin, Eligius. And he's actually a saint from this area, from this part of the world, from Flanders. And uh, he is a patron saint that you can call upon if you uh, want uh, some help with your horses. So, so funny to, to discover these, these, these cross, this kind of crossover stuff between these various religions and cultures. Um, and there's so much more in that respect that you can discover. Even the, the way we build our cathedrals, it's all... You know, taking from other existing cultures and existing buildings, and uh, a lot of that is not religious at all. But because, well, like the Christmas tree, it's a completely secular thing. But the the Christian interpretation is: well, we for Christmas we have this Christmas tree to be the symbol of of eternal life because it never loses its uh, leaves, right? It stays green even in the winter when everything is dark, just like Christ was born in the middle of winter and he was this, this new source of life for, for mankind, etc., etc. You know, that's why I love to, to uh, dive into history. And with that, it is time to start wrapping things up. Thank you so much to listen, uh, for listening to this episode. And there will be a new one next weekend for my patrons. I have a special episode waiting for them called Father Roderick to the Max. And this time I'm going to give you my secret recipe for string beans noodles. It's actually much more delicious than it sounds. I also review a board game that I played recently based on a Viking story called Reavers of Midgard. Also talk a little bit about the function of bells in Catholic liturgy and maybe talk a little bit about VR. All that and more in my patron-only show called Father Roderick to the Max. Look for the episode from week 34. Now, if you would like to get access to that podcast as well and get some other perks like access to the Discord server, make sure to go over to patreon.com slash fatherroderick. You can already be a patron for, what is it, 250 a month. So if you can miss that, 
and you want to join this very awesome community of more than 200 patrons that help me do what I do, take, take a look. Thanks in advance. Talk to you later.